Hello, hello. Welcome to our Job the Stamp podcast. If it is your first time tuning in, welcome. And if you've been following the gang for a while, welcome back, my friend. This podcast showcases talented young scientists from different parts of the world who, with their undeniable passion for science, dedicated mindset, diligent work, and exceptional achievements in the STEM fields, are making a lasting impact today for a brighter tomorrow. We also infuse science with the humane aspect of it, showcasing the person beyond the project board. The guests are ISAF, USIS, SIUS, RSI, and ITEM alumni. You can discover more about that on www.dropthestand.com, linked in our bio. If you enjoy listening to the episode and think this is worth tuning into, feel free to share it with others tagging the pod because we love seeing some supportive queens and kings. And now, let's jump right into the episode and discover who is gonna be dropping the stand today. Let's welcome on the pod Tarun Marthishwaran. Tarun has a strong background in mathematics and competed at the national level growing up, being a five-time American Invitational Mathematics Examination Qualifier. Upon entering high school, he got involved in research in the computational epidemiology field and created an early detection model for dengue fever. His project earned him a spot at ISF 2019 and 2020, a national award at the Junior Science and Humanities Symposium, and the opportunity to present at several international conferences. Tarn is an IREC INSPO Science Grand Award winner and invited to present at the American Association for Virology Conference, a Young Scientist Journal International Conference in London winner, and American Association of Cancer Research Conference presenter. Tarn also worked on a project titled Body Mass Index and Mammographic Density Among Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders, which deduces risk factors of women of different ethnicities and takes a specific look at the native Hawaiian population. This summer, he was one of four ISAF finalists to be chosen for the Web Valley 2020 team, where he gained many more skills in computational biology and data science to create a single-cell sequencing training package to be implemented into Italian universities. Tarn also loves teaching STEM more than anything in the world. As president and founding member of the organization Mission Math, they create a law for math in every community across the state of Utah. Hi, Tarun. Welcome on the podcast. I'm glad to have you on. Hi. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about everything today. Yes, everything involving science and also getting to know as a scientist and the person beyond the project board to make that experience whole and complete. To start it off, I'm really interested to get to know, and I know the listeners as well, behind the scenes, uh, what eventually drew you closer to the world of science and, you know, what motivated you essentially to stick with it in the long run? Yeah, of course. So growing up, I was always really interested in math, um, kind of like school math, and I used to compete in math around the nation and stuff like that. And when I came into high school, I really wanted to find a way to apply my built up math knowledge to a topic or a question that could help the world. So after a lot of reading and just scrolling through like research articles and different areas of math applied to a scientific research, I discovered mathematical modeling for infectious diseases. And I just kind of fell in love immediately because I saw it was so versatile and 
tracking so many different infectious diseases just with those equations that I had discovered through school and other different endeavors. And I think that's what really inspired me to stick with it is because I had already loved math and now I was able to use math in a way that could really help humankind with the diseases that plague us every day. So tracking those diseases and preventing those diseases, making interventions for those diseases, all these different things that I could do just with some equations. That's what really made me fall in love with it and why I've stuck with it until today. That is very inspiring to hear that you could use your mathematical knowledge as an effective tool to make an impact on the lives of others and also save their lives because you are tracking down or modeling diseases that can bring out harmful outcomes and consequences. Can you elaborate on what kind of diseases have you actually conducted research about? For the past four years, I've worked with um, and creating an early detection model for Dengue fever. Dengue fever is the most rapidly spreading mosquito-borne disease in our world right now, um, mostly prevalent in South in Asia, um, South America, and most recently Central America has had very large outbreaks. Um, so right now over 50% of our world is at risk. So really what I have done is I use differential equations and differential equations just track the rate over time of um, humans and mosquitoes just to see how the disease would spread um, and be transmitted between humans and mosquitoes over a certain amount of time. Um, and after creating those equations, I was able to look at past data with dengue fever, and I was able to estimate the parameters or, um, necessary for the differential equations. So those parameter values, like what values I should use in my equations by looking at the past data, and that helps us look to, look to the future as well to predict future outbreaks. So I can go into more into the differential equations if you're curious, but beyond dengue fever, what I've done um, and as you know, my main interest, my research interest lies in epidemiology as a whole and um, infectious disease epidemiology, which is what I just elaborated on with the mathematical modeling, is something that's taken up a lot of my time and really got me into the rest of the fields of epidemiology, which are also based in um, using math uh, and different techniques of math to form interventions and explore different diseases. So I've also been working with breast cancer and a big data set with a multi-ethnic cohort, so many women of many different ethnicities. And what we're looking towards is how the association between mammographic density, so like breast density and um, BMI works differently between those those three co those several different ethnicities of women. And we do that using other types of mathematical models um, just to see how different women's risk can appear differently for breast cancer um, depending on their race or ethnicity. So that can be done with math as well. And most recently over the summer, I had the chance to work in my at my local university virtually um, with a bit of COVID data um, using similar techniques that I described with dengue fever um, just to see explore how the disease spreads and predict which intervention strategies would work and not. Yeah, what a colorful palette or portfolio <laughs> of what you described here previously. And it totally shocked me that 50% of the world's population is at risk of dengue fever. I wouldn't have thought that. You can see completely different perspective to it because it's not just experimental, but also you can use these descriptive equations, differential equations, which is also, um, I guess you've been involved in math competitions, so it almost comes to you as natural, those more complicated equations but um, I know that in university, I mistakenly took up differential equations last term and I didn't have calc one, two or three. So oh. <laughs> math gets harder when you use letters instead of numbers. 
But for all those math nerds and also the ones who are listening in and interested in mathematics, could you just say a few words about the equations you've used and what type of equations essentially helped you in your discovery? Of course, sure. So I'm just going to describe the mathematical model that I used for dengue and also this summer for COVID and is really applicable to most infectious diseases. So it's called the SIR model in its most basic form. And it's a compartmental model, meaning that you take a population and split them into three different compartments. Susceptibles, those who do not have the disease but can get it in the future, meaning they don't have the antibodies. Um, I meaning infected, that means they're currently infected with the disease and are meaning removed, meaning they've recovered from the disease and they've gained an immunity to it. So that's a very simplified version of the model, but basically how it works is you use differential equations to track the population of each of those compartments, S, I, and R, and those and different parameters that track the transmission. So for example, you move from the susceptible to infected compartment at a certain rate, you recover at a certain rate, and and like you have to take into account like human life, like being born into the susceptible. So there's all these different com- parameters that you input into the differential equations. And what they actually tell you is how the com- populations of those different compartments can change over time. Um, so you have like the change in susceptible with respect to time is the, like, I'm trying to describe this without using like straight up math equations, but it's just, just the rate at which you move from susceptible born into susceptible and then subtracting the rate at which you move from susceptible to infected and the other equations behave the same way and using a computer program um, several different languages are capable of handling differential equations as they are Um, you can really just input them into the into the programming language and you can generate graphs and other different data sets of tracking the populations of those compartments over time which ultimately allow us to see how the infected compartment grows from having no one infected to exponentially growing over time, according to the different disease. So that's really how the mathematical model works. That's very interesting, as you've described the compartmentalization and how those different parameters or how you put them in the equation um, overall affect the outcome. As you are invested in this field, I would love to hear from you. How have you viewed the field of epidemiology change in the recent years? And how do you intend to contribute to its involvement with your ongoing research on infectious diseases and also about the racial disparities in breast cancer? Yeah, that's a really good question. So epidemiology, I could go an easy route and say that it's changed very rapidly in the recent year due to COVID. Um, the amount of the amount of attention towards epidemiology is growing greatly. Um, what epidemiologists do, like form intervention strategies for COVID or see how COVID will spread. So epi- the, the um, attention towards epidemiology has really grown. But asking about specific advancements in the field, I would, I would say I would start with mathematical modeling and with mathematical modeling, there are rapid changes. They're gradual because um, once someone comes up with a new type of mathematical model, everyone explores it with all the different diseases and emerging infectious diseases, and then they'll move on um, and try to find once upon, once in a time or every so often, someone will try to find a um, new mathematical model. So really what we're trying to move, what epidemiologists are trying to move closer to with mathematical models is overall being more accurate with tracking like social movements and humans in general. Like the downside of mathematical modeling um, with a simplified model like the SIR model is that you can't know how humans travel. You can't know how humans interact with others exactly. 
um, like their family members, their friends, like mathematical models are generalized in that sense. Um, they just use rates to track the disease based on past data um, that people have tried to estimate those parameters from. But as we move forward, I've read like several studies about like using geographic trackers and social monitors, um, incorporating those into models, which really astounds me. Um, and so we can track like humans on an individual basis in the future, um, allowing us to see exactly like how he, one human getting infected um, infects other people, how they move. Um, and so the, yeah, and that kind of leads me into the next thing is that because we know so little about how humans are, like how humans move and um, how they can infect others, which is why um, the mathematical models tell us now so that we have to social distance is because um, we're not only is that the safest option because it decreases the transmission, but because um, we just don't have the power right now to see exactly the how humans um, interacting with each other would ex would cause the spread of the disease to go rapidly. Once we have those models where we're able to track humans on an individual basis, we'll know exactly how techniques like social distancing and um, the level of social distancing that we need um, can affect the spread of the disease more accurately, if that makes sense. So, but um, more on the other side of epidemiology, which is um, I've kind of, my breast cancer research could more be classified into the area of like molecular epidemiology. Um, and I would think that once that is just more access to um, data, bigger data, more descriptive data, so that what I've worked with right now with the health disparities and different racial and ethnic groups, um, there were a lot of different variables that we could track just to see if there were differences between those racial and ethnic groups. Like we had hormone therapy usage or breast implants or all these different variables that we were able to discover. Um, and we found some persuasive results in some of them that showed differences between the racial and ethnic groups. But um, overall, the associations between BMI and breast density were pretty homogeneous in the sense that like all, all of them were kind of the same, but visualizing the data, we know that there's some variable out there that may make a difference. Like there's, there's always going to be that problem with um, those, those kinds of molecular epidemiology and lifestyle epidemiology um, studies where if the, we just need access to more variables in the data. And I see in the future um, that people will plan to get, I, I think those data collection places and place the, the sources of the data for many epidemiologists will start to improve their um, collection measures. Um, and like, obviously they have to keep in mind, like all those biases that come from statistics and surveys, but they do have to move forward in collecting more data and more variables. And I think that's what was really going to move forward. Um, those kinds of studies in epidemiology and also in epidemiology, there's, there's like genomic data. Um, and I know that that is probably the one of the most emerging and breakthroughs is because the way in which we sweet sequence like DNA and um, on a microcellular level, that's getting to be very like advanced. And I think that that I, I want to kind of dabble in that in the future, maybe in like undergrad or um, after I graduate, starting to move it more into like the molecular stuff, because that's where all the breakthroughs, I think, are bound to happen um, in the future. So, yeah, and I would th I would say that, like you asked also how I want to be involved. And I think both on that mathematical side, more um, like trying to learn how to do how our world is adapting to 
creating those models that can track humans on an individual basis, which is really incredible if we can ever get to that point. Um, making those advancements, I'd like to be involved in that, um, try to make discoveries of my own that can help our world move forward in that direction, and also um, be involved in these different molecular epidemiology and um, studies and get more data um, just to make new discoveries, I guess. So that's that's how I want to be involved in the future. It's just epidemiology is advancing so much. So Absolutely. These are excellent strategic visions you've just shared. And, and partly not just visions, but those were also put into practice. And on yeah. the first part of your expansion about the advancement of mathematical modeling, it's really intriguing because when we think about mathematical modeling, it's um, almost very objective. But with the social movements you've described, I guess with the geo-tracking and individual preferences, perhaps if we could take into account or might be over there already doing that, like travel habits or several economic factors, you could narrow down the consequences or the rate of, of mistakes. Would you say that? Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely true. There has been like a lot of research with age, age standardization, for example, um, standardizing the models by age, stratifying them so that we can see how the disease spreads based on age. Like, as I'm sure you know, with COVID, the elderly population is the most at risk and it's most likely to spread with, um, within like those those senior populations. Um, and including that as a variable in the model age can really make for a lot of differences in infectious diseases like COVID because it's not homogeneous. Um, it's the, the rate at which it spreads among the elderly and the rate at which it sp spreads among the youth, as everyone knows, is, is vastly different. And um, including that as a parameter in the model can give us more focused results and prevent like um, overgeneralized results or assumptions that just aren't true. Um, and also, like, as you said, like economic factors, um, that not only plays a role in like, in more data collection, as I mentioned, for like, the population data, and health disparities research that would come in handy, but also creating mathematical models by economic status and social status and all of these different variables that you could think of. Um, that's what that's what we're that's like the next step, I would say, is getting our models more specific towards humans, different types of humans around the world. Um, and you could definitely do that. It's just, it just comes down to um, creating either different models by economic status or including that as like a parameter in the differential equations. It, it just really comes down to um, how we can make individualize more humans of the population by either splitting them into groups by economic or social or age or Moving into the future with the geo tracking, um, we may not even need that and just be able to track humans on an individual basis and have information about them that we need to determine like their risk for an infectious disease or um, how they how that maybe will spread it to others, if that makes sense. Yes, and, and I can totally see that as a more nuanced analysis can help you have results and better resolution, so to speak. Also, what you've described about your future aspirations, I think that is so great that you want to dive deeper into the molecular level and examine things happening at a smaller scale. What is trending with the new DNA sequencing technologies and techniques, and of course, also the revolutionizing power of biotechnologies that personalized treatment is used more than ever before. And I think that Gen Z in general denies um, stereotypes. And I think that science also shifts toward, towards that, um, that movement of making more tailored techniques. Definitely. Yeah, I'm really excited to get into the molecular level because there's just 
that part of life, like even though there's so many molecular studies, people are moving more towards it. I feel like there's just so much left to be discovered about um, things we don't know about, like the cells in our body, the genes they express, how they're different, how they like, like, for example, like stem cell development is probably one of the biggest fields of research right now. Um, and exploring those data sets um, with like epidemiology techniques can help us move forward in those kinds of areas. So Yes, it's hard to give carrier device to stem cells because they can be anything they want to be. Yeah, yeah. And you've mentioned COVID a few times before, so it would be foolish to not address it. Of course. You've started working on a project for preventing COVID transmission with the help of mathematics. Could you expand on this endeavor? Sure, definitely. So um, in my my work with dengue fever, um, my mentors that helped me along the way whenever, like, to sophisticate the math and um, any other aspect of like programming. Um, they're part of the math biology group at my local university. So that's the title of the group. And what they work with is the members of our group work on a ton of different projects. So there's like immunology, ecology even, um, but they're just experts at <clears throat> math and biology. So um, mathematical modeling is kind of their niche. And when COVID kind of came around, that a lot of them were like CDC sponsored projects started to go into those um, about making either models to track locals on a local scale um, to help with like school reopenings or just in communities of like in my state of Utah or just some even are looking at like bigger or multi-state or even national scales of using that those different types of mathematical models to um, kind of predict the spread of COVID. And so this summer, we were all kind of talking about it in lab group going kind of talking about different ideas of um, how to predict and track the spread of COVID over time. And um, I was really interested just to see how the SIR model could do, like, as I described with dengue on COVID, how do I adapt adapt the SIR model from dengue to COVID is you have the same differential equations, um, but the parameter values are key because those change from infectious disease to infectious disease really based on how infectious it is. And so the two main parameters that I really needed to track um, COVID kind of accurately, it's, it's like a generalization, but it, it does track like approximately how it spreads are the basic reproduction number and the recovery rate. So are you familiar with like basic reproduction number, like R not? Have you have you heard about that for infectious diseases? Yes, I've heard about it. But for those listeners who might not be so familiar with the definition of the term, could you give like an elevator speech about it? Of course, of course I can. So um, R not, and it, um, basically what it means is the amount of humans that are infected um, further from one human being infected. So for example, if one human is infected, then three more get infected, then nine, then 27, that's like an R naught of three because it's growing at an exponential rate of three. And um, that that's like, that's, that's why an infectious disease grows exponentially, first of all, but that's a, used as a parameter actually in the, in the differential equations that can track the transmission of the spread in the differential equations. So you use that basic reproduction number. And there is a characteristic one for every different infectious disease that we know of. Um, that's like one of the first things that epidemiologists try to find out. Um, and so you incorporate those into the differential equations. And when you simulate them in the in a, in a computer program, you can see how COVID will grow in, in, in time if nothing was done about it. If we didn't do anything with like a vaccine or social distancing, you can see how bad it, it could have gotten. So that's what I discovered in um, right away, like COVID has 
kind of a, a pretty high R naught. I think it's around um, four. There's a ton of different estimates, but four seems to be commonly held among infectious disease epidemiologists. And you can just imagine like the number of infections that grow from like one to four to 16 to um, 64 to 250. So um, over time, it may have it controlled itself just because of herd immunity, but that's obviously not feasible. Like we cannot let it get that bad. There are some viewpoints that like after looking at those mathematical models that like some even like in infectious disease physicians around the world believe that we, we have to let herd immunity take over and just let everyone get infected. But like you have, we have to think about all those elderly populations that may, may like, it may be fatal if we, if we let that happen, like many of them will, will die. So these kinds of like ethical dilemmas are um, key to these kinds of COVID studies. So what I personally focused on for my research was um, seeing how these different intervention strategies would help us in, in lowering like the peak of the outbreak, as well as how the time of the, the, the outbreak will last will change. So these different intervention strategies that you see um, and you hear of around the world, such as like mask wearing, um, vaccines, social distancing, all decrease that basic reproduction number that are not that, that I mentioned to a certain degree. And that's, that's been measured from previous studies, um, by lot, both biological and mathematical. And you can incorporate that decrease into the new different, into the differential equation. So basically that's as simple as changing the parameter value. And you can see how the disease will spread again by creating a simulation in a computer program um, as compared to if nothing was done. So, so for example, I've, I've read that like mask wearing decreases the transmission by like 70%. So you incorporate that into the, the differential equations of the model. And you can see how, instead of a rapid increase right away, the, the spread will kind of like increase a little, but decrease, but like not as, not nearly as much as the peak of COVID if nothing was done and last over a shorter time. So same thing with like vaccines, people, I, I looked into like a, how a vaccine would actually help us. And obviously that's the most effective strategy. It decreases, it like surely decreases the transmission. Um, Cause that's, that's able to be measured um, with masks a little iffy, just because like people, people think that everyone are, is wearing masks, but obviously that's not the case. There are several people who don't like protesters um, and stuff like that, anti-maskers and stuff like that refuse to wear them. Um, but vaccines, if everybody can get a vaccine, um, and obviously there are still like anti-vaxxers and stuff like that, but it is the most reliable way we can reduce the spread. Um, and as, as I've shown mathematically and as um, almost all infectious disease epidemiologists believe. So yeah, COVID, it was really fun getting that experience. Um, right now I'm kind of looking into like using past data sets of the spread of COVID in different areas because, um, and this is kind of relates to what I mentioned earlier about how people are getting increased data tracking and data collection. So now like you can just type in COVID data, Utah, COVID data, like literally any country, even any city, and you'll come up with like the spread over time. And with those um, differential equations that I mentioned um, and coupled with that data from, from the past, you can just estimate all the parameters you need. Um, and you can see like how maybe the R not defers in country to country or add in more compartments, more variables and fit, fit the differential equations to that data. So there's many dif different directions that I can move with the research. And that's due honestly to the advanced data collection that we have with COVID. Well, that's a very impressive research. And with the reported numbers of 280,000 deaths in the U.S. Oh, at yeah. this moment, it's, it's more than necessary what you are conducting. 
people really need to see like the importance of like wearing masks. Like it's mathematically shown this is going to work. All we have to do is, and I don't mean to get like political here or anything, is just like sacrifice a bit of your perceived like kind of right to not wear a mask because this is something that's 280,000 deaths is ridiculous and no other country is facing it this badly. So. so you can never know who it's going to affect because you totally have to think about yourself, but also of your loved ones and can be caring for other exactly. people. We have to ditch, I guess, the fashion models you might have seen place and streets like they wear it if the mask was a beard or the one ear, the earring. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's tons of movements like that. It's, it's ridiculous, in my opinion. Absolutely. And you can clearly see with mathematical modeling how wearing a mask is justified. And I think that's such a powerful message as a researcher, a scientist in whom people, I hope, still to this day have trust. Just on a personal note, my grandfather had caught COVID for two weeks. And I just shared it in my personal story, but we really have to take care of our loved ones because we don't really know how it's going to affect their immune system. And even though you can mathematically model it, it's still a bit of a Russian rule, isn't it? Definitely. There's always those. I, I'm so sorry, first of all, for your grandpa. And, and like, I think that there's so many, like, like almost all infectious disease epidemiologists know that ethics plays a big part of these and like social cues play a big part of these mathematical models that we form for these new infectious diseases as well. The mathematical models are useful. We also have to consider like so many different aspects that equations can't track, like people losing their loved ones because they're elderly or they're immunocompromised or whatever else it may be. The equations can't track that. We just make recommendations to the public and show how the spread is going to grow and how it may not if we all wear masks or anything like that. But of course, there's all these different aspects to consider as well. Absolutely. And thank you. And with being invested in this research, COVID is going to, well, hopefully decrease. But okay, yeah. I think that in the next uh, couple of months, we still have this on the top conversation topics to talk about. But how are you going to move forward? Or what kind of research projects are you working at the moment? What's your short-term goal in this pandemic situation in terms of research? That's a really good question. I think I want to move forward with my COVID project, um, even though like the amount of pro epidemiology projects and mathematical modeling to projects of COVID has just grown almost exponentially. I think that what would make a study from me unique personally is just expanding um, my dengue research. And like I've, after four years of dengue research, I've had like built a kind of a framework with the SIR model that has made it more complex and the techniques like more mathematically sound on just applying it to COVID data in, in Utah, which is the state I live in, just to see how the, um, and I can even go into like the city level because I think they even have data on that. And I think that using those differential equations and fitting it to that data to determine like how the basic reproduction number has deferred in the past between like different regions of my state. I think that would be like a good first step to see like to make recommendations to those regions um, and like public health, the like Utah's public health officials. Um, I think that would be a really interesting um, thing to discover. And right now, other than COVID, I'm still um, kind of advancing my dengue research. Even after four years, like I had kind of had like a perpetual curiosity, I would say for um, moving further. Um, right now I'm looking into adding more compartments to the disease because um, dengue is, is, I would argue it's more complex than COVID because first of all, you have to keep in mind the humans and the mosquitoes. 
And also dengue has four different serotypes um, circulating around the environment and tracking like the interaction between those serotypes, like reinfections with the same serotype or um, antibody dependent enhancement for the other serotypes, tracking all of those different factors in a mathematical model gets very complex. It takes a lot of time, but I want to discover how I can advance my model and apply it towards forming like an early detection strategy for the different countries. Like up to now, I've, I've been able to predict the spread of um, several large outbreaks in Singapore, Cambodia, and Honduras with over 80% accuracy. But it's, it's interesting to see how I can explore more countries around the world that have publicly available data and advance my mathematical model um, to become more individualized towards humans and towards the disease um, to become just a better predictor, I guess, is the best way I can describe it. So that's like in the short term run, what I what I would say I want to work on the long term run, getting more into like molecular epidemiology research seems like it's only the like, it's the right thing to do um, to keep up with like the biotechnology advances. And yeah, I would say like it, it there's just so much that the future holds. I don't know exactly like what I may how I may move forward with epidemiology but I know that I want to be involved with epidemiology for far into the future. Yes, there so. are still variables in the equation of your life. Oh, definitely, definitely, yeah. Can't track those in a mathematical model, though. <laughs> yes, but despite the complexity of the research you're about to conduct and dive deeper into, I believe that today will be worth it, your endeavors. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, a crucial part, I think, about your STEM journey as well as uh, taking part in ISAF and as one of four 2020 finalists, you were actually chosen for the Web Valley 2020 team. And I guess it was in the summer. What was your project on? What did you guys uh, work on during that time? Yeah, it was four of us ISAF 2020 finalists, as well as I think it was like 10 other Italian students. Because the Web Valley program is based in Italy, usually that's where it's held for like ISAF finalists, American ISAF finalists travel over there. Um, but of course, this year I had to be held virtually. So what we actually did was um, we spent a, it, like it was a long process each day just because um, we, they had to coordinate times that matched up between America and Italy, which is not easy, but it, it worked out. But we all worked as a team for the first week just to learn techniques for single cell RNA sequencing. Um, and single cell RNA sequencing, it gave me kind of my first taste at what I've mentioned about the molecular stuff. Um, looking at cells, single cell sequencing is a really cool advancement where you were able to look at cells on a cellular, individual cellular level um, and see like different and explore differences between cells, like in, in, in terms of the genes they express and the genes they don't. Uh, and that turns into like a data set after a ton of like kind of like classic wet lab stuff like PCR of different like cell collections and creating that and putting that into a data set. Um, after that, you're able to explore different um, cell cells in the genes they express for humans that have a specific disease or cancer or some other some other disease. And you're able to use like statistical techniques and different mathematical techniques to deduce the differences between the cells and um, what what makes cancer cells different, what, what makes the cells infected with the virus different and, um, and things like that. So I thought that was really interesting um, that an extension of kind of like my mathematical interest into kind of like into like that first molecular taste of stuff. And so the first week we learned about all those different techniques involved in single cell sequencing, like data analysis, dimensionality reduction, um, just a, like really complex stuff that 
I, I had no idea of before I moved into the program, but I came out with like kind of a solid understanding. And then um, for the next uh, week, we worked as a team to develop a single cell sequencing training course. So like learning modules for that are going to be implemented into Italian university schools. So basically we created like a step-by-step training course from getting the data set and all the techniques you need to do in order to deduce those differences between the cells um, and explore all the things you can with that that genomic data set um, and from start to finish. So working with different data sets to do so. And um, we as a team created that framework. So that that's mostly what we worked on. That's so cool to hear that you can actually implement it on an educational level. Yeah, definitely. It's it's really exciting, and I hope like, um, I hope it's like at the level that the professors appreciate. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> as as being a nice participant myself, it's kind of like walking down in the lanes surrounded by future Nobel Prize winners. So <laughs> definitely, that's crazy. Definitely on the right course. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. And as walking down in memory lane kind of, um, I said it take place in 2019. I mean, the one that we could actually still hold in uh, the live version. I've had a couple of ISAF guests on the podcast so far. And I also like to ask the question, what were some of your highlight real moments of ISAF 2019 that truly stand out till this day? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, I loved ISEF. I think that it was like one of the best experiences of my life. When I was in 2018, uh, the year before I had the chance to go as like an observer. Um, so I kind of like got to see ISEF from the outside, like kind of talk to pretty much everybody. Um, and moving into 2019. So the projects that I've entered in ISEF have all been my dengue fever projects, just making advancements from year to year. So that 2019 was my second year with my dengue fever project. And it was kind of like a simplified version of the SIR model um, and exploring like just one country. Um, But it was still really cool. Like I learned a lot from it. So at ISEF, I think like beyond even like the non-presentational stuff and the non like science related stuff, like I really enjoyed just like those activities that, um, I don't know, was it Intel or I, I don't know, whoever runs ISEF, plans for all the finalists in uh in in throughout the week just like the icebreakers and like the i think my favorite part was probably like the 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 mosh pit like the dance i don't know exactly what to call it but like that that got super hype i think um and it was really fun like like just like kind of like breaking the ice and meeting a ton of people and just like going crazy to the songs you know uh so that was really fun yeah but i think that beyond there like all those different tours that we had the chance to do in phoenix and um kind of just the freedom to explore the the area that was all really cool and on the science scientific side and presentation side um i was in the computational biology category so because i that's where like my project fit the best i guess and i got to meet a ton of people like um in my category that were more working with like genome data sets and um, cell and like molecular data sets, because that's usually what computational biology entails. But there's like a small subcategory of computational epidemiology, which I think I was the only participant in. And um, that was, yeah, that was really, that was really cool meeting those other people and like, ex- like just listening to their project was like, just fantastic. It was, it was crazy to meet just so many other people that have such similar passions and interests to you and how they've explored it by themselves. Um, listening to them talk about their projects was honestly some of the best conversations I've, I've ever had. Um, meeting not only those, but like, 
you can venture over to like those other categories that you're clueless about, but just to see how knowledgeable those people are about their topics. Like, I mean, math, like some of those math projects were just absolutely insane. Like I will, I, I like love math and I like, like problem solving within math, but those like pure math projects, they're just on a whole nother level. Like I don't, I just can't even explain it, but, um, and like computer science and like those ro robotic machines, like those are crazy, I think. And, um, it's like, it's like being, like you said, like among like the next Nobel prize winners, like just getting like a sneak peek at what they're working on now, you know? Yes. Kind of predict the future. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. And it's truly PhD level research and you can actually see the spark in their eyes when they are elaborating. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. Everyone that has like a, has like a really great passion for their project, which I think is so important. Absolutely. And they're not necessarily, you know, pushed by parents or mentors, but definitely course, yeah. see that kind of passion. It drives them forward. And I think you've referred to the Mixer event when the dancing. Yeah, that was so fun. Yeah. At the time, I think the Old Town Road song was the hit. Oh, right, right, right. You're right. You also want to give back to your community and not just like-minded peers, but um, to the people around you through the powers, the transformative effects of STEM. And one of your, I think, mm. passion projects, we can call it that way, um, that grew out itself to an organization, Mission Math, is something close to your heart. And I'd like to ask you, how would you define your mission goals? And can you just Speak a little bit about that organization as president and founding member. Mission Math was started back in 2016. So it's been around for quite a while now. Um, and at first we were just a group, we're a group of um, high school students that all had experience with competition math and math and has had a really great interest for it as well as teaching. And so we kind of developed Mission Math just as an idea initially to um, create opportun more opportunities for students around Utah to engage in competitions and camps that help further their interest in math. Because at the time, like outside of school, there was really no like um, opportunities to learn like competition math or even just math opportunities other than what you had in the classroom and those competitions, those traditional competitions around our state. But other than that, there was no like preparation. Um, you just had to do everything individually for the most part. Um, and so with Mission Math, we, we kind of started out as an idea to, we started holding camps and competitions initially with like low participation, which is expected um, for students around our state. And so at the start, we, we had like boot camps in, in the winter, our traditional winter camp. Um, and then we have our um, spring competition. And those were pretty successful. Over time, we got a lot of participation. And I think rather than people being doubtful of a group of high schoolers leading the organization, people actually enjoyed it because their students connected better with student with like other teenagers and other younger students because not only were we able to like um kind of like help help them better and like connect with them better but the students loved it as well um and so that kind of popularized our organization and over time we started increasing our participation rapidly um and so we have like our up to now we still have our traditional events like the winter camp which has over like 100 students in participation at least before covid um same with like our spring competition and our summer camp um and so we we've, we've kept we've kept holding those, uh, and recently, as I became like CEO and then president, I kind of was thrown into the CEO position, um, like in my junior year, and I, I I wanted it really badly because I had so many ideas for Mission Math to move forward. So what I did was we had our traditional winter camp, and we had we have all those events, but I realized that 
Um, there were communities that we were still not reaching. Like we, we had the chance to reach so many different um, people over time that had no idea of math opportunities outside of school, like special needs schools and um, schools in underprivileged areas. But in those specific underprivileged areas, there were several communities that we were still not reaching. And I thought to myself that there are other organizations around my state that are able to get in touch with these different students that um, really probably love math, but just don't know how to expand on their love outside of school. So um, recently I formed a partnership with this amazing organization called Latinos in Action. And Latinos in Action focuses on those um, Latino students that around our state that um, are mainly in underprivileged areas and um, are really excited about math. And uh, well, some of them are really excited about math and joining Mission Math. So we started doing like standardized test tutoring and math tutoring for those students as well. I'm just focusing on them and offering free services because in the first place, Mission Math is a nonprofit. We give all of our proceeds to those different STEM organizations around our state, like our local science fair, um, First Robotics, all of those different things. So, um, but these, these opportunities are free because these students, they simply, um, they can't afford it, but they do have that interest for math that we love to see as teachers. So we started to do that, ex kind of expanding our mission statement beyond holding those math competitions and camps and increasing those opportunities to targeting students that um, and expanding opportunities for more students in general around our state. We've started to receive more like attention from other organizations that are interested in like the stuff that Mission Math does. Um, and we're starting to reach more communities, which is exactly what I wanted when I moved into this role. And um, also like I could just speak a little to this, like the pandemic kind of really affected um, Mission Math's traditional events, I would say as CEO, I, at the time I, I was kind of in charge of coordinating our movement into the pandemic. So we had obviously had to cancel our in-person events right as that began. Um, but we started now using a ton of like virtual services um, to hold different things. So we started like one-on-one -on -one tutoring for students who kind of fell behind in their math education during the pandemic, just to help them catch up and even extend beyond what they curriculum they're learning in the classroom right now. Right now we're about to hold our winter camp. Um, while that's traditionally the one with over 100 students at around our state, now we've had to transition it to virtual and we've been planning for so long about how we're going to do that um, effectively. And I just think like there's like a lot of like nonprofits, especially um, around just like in around the nation, like run, no matter run, like they're facing a lot of pr trouble right now, as well as like classrooms that don't have access to like computers for their students to do virtual learning. Um, so they're having a lot of trouble right now. So that's why like the tutoring program helps. And like the, we still wanted to help hold this winter camp um, because we want to um, not only help students who kind of fell behind and want an opportunity to learn more math, but also so we can use proceeds to like support those different um, organizations that not like help students gain virtual access to learning and support students in classrooms and stuff like that. So I would say that's where Mission Math's headed right now um, through the pandemic. And when we come out, I think that we have a really good framework to start holding like in-person opportunities for these new students that we've had. That is more than applaudable work that you are doing. You are truly agents of change in those underprivileged communities um, because those members might have the ambition, but not necessarily the tools to their passions. Exactly. 
Exactly. And that's what I've seen. A CEO who says the strategies and is involved, I guess, on a day-to-day, -day, but a very frequent base of decision-making, you also have to compartmentalize and try to guess what the best strategy to implement in that situation might be. And that's why I'm interested to hear what you think are some of the best ways, in your opinion, to, you know, really spark interest in others to pursue STEM and jump right into this direction. Definitely. So I think that after teaching like hundreds of students and seeing like some students like progress to kind of like more STEM oriented interest in the high school, like elementary school students or middle school students or high school and other students who chose different paths. Um, I think that you just really need to have um, in yourself, like a genuine interest to learn about STEM topics. Like after reaching like, a, a, like so many students that like their parents kind of like forced them to be at our camps and our competitions. And like, they openly expressed that you could tell um, <laughs> it, just didn't, it just didn't work out. I mean, like, They, they just weren't interested to learn new stuff like other students were. And eventually, like, none of the information got to them, which is, like, similar with any STEM topic. If you, unless you have, like, a really, like, genuine interest from yourself to learn about that topic, like, self-driven, it's really never going to reach you in the best way. Um, so I, say, I would say that the initial um, want to, like, learn STEM has to come from the student. But I think that as, like, mentors and teachers, we play a big part of the role in like crafting their interest for STEM and improving it. Um, so I would say like specifically your question was about um, to the best ways to spark interest. And I would think that just like introducing them to topics that they may have not known about or and explaining that in an effective way and making them feel like really encouraged when they solve a problem, a new problem or challenging problem, making them feel like they like really accomplished something because they did like, like they, they put in the work, they, they, kind of like absorbed what we were teaching and they solved a new problem. Like rewarding them for that is, is something that's really important for, especially at a younger age. Um, and over time they start to build up confidence in that specific field of STEM and moving into, as they mature and grow into an older age, they start to want to explore it on their own. That's kind of how I was raised at least. And then um, from there, I feel, I feel like that, that the interest in STEM is kind of just sparked for life. It starts at a really young age, but once you like go through and you have like the right mentorship and instruction, I would say that's crucial as well. Um, people who can really motivate you and are very skilled as well that can like help you learn any and answer any question you may have. Having those mentors is extremely important. So I would say that's another kind of journey of mission math and just like kind of a thing that you need in life, not only STEM, just like you need like to find someone who can act as a strong like mentor. Yes, because excessive parental for, uh, force can actually transform into either rebellion or passivity. And I totally agree with you, yeah. <laughs> neither of yeah. them really helps you in the long run. Yeah, what you've described is, mm. is a, as I'm going to express, is a bit of business-minded, but those kind of learning procedures are transactional. And I think it's really valuable what you've elaborated upon that good work deserves its reward. And it's just going to help them uh, with increasing their responsibility and also curiosity to explore other topics. You've mentioned the power of familiar inspiration. And I would like to ask you that how have your parents or your family encouraged you in your STEM journey? My parents, they're, neither of them work in like STEM fields. Um, they, my, my, my dad kind of works in like real estate and my mom works in like, um, but my mom works at, are you familiar with Kumon? Kuhn? 
Kumon, Kumon. It's like it's a kind of like a program. Um, like a lot of um, it's. I guess it's more familiar for American students, but it's kind of like this educational program for younger students that for math and reading. Um, and like you kind of progress through levels, and you get to learn a ton of like school stuff. It's like more oriented towards school curriculum stuff. Um, and I would say that my parents like doing that Kumon program. Um, even though like it, um, there were like tears because it, it like it's famous for like making students like angry because they have to do like extra homework outside of school. But um, obviously with a mom that kind of like is in charge of a branch, like you kind of kind of have to do it, me and my sister. Um, so we kind of grew up with that program. Um, and it's really important if you want to succeed from those kinds of programs to be like self-driven. So my mom, um, while like she did pressure us and like there was some kind of like parental influencement at like an early age. Uh, pushing us through the program was probably probably one of the best things that she could have done because I built like a strong math foundation um, from there um, by progressing through those worksheets. But beyond there, like beyond like elementary school, I would say um, my parents really couldn't like help with like any help me like to find like a project or science project or help me like learn competition math. But instead, like they're just very supportive of um, everything that I everything that I do by myself or learn by myself. Like they they're always there to like um, watch me at like my science fair presentation or watch me do a math competition and just provide like emotional support, I would say is a key factor. Um, they're very motivational, which I, which I mentioned like strong mentorship, like how important that is and strong having like a strong presence in your life um, that is able to not, not like they don't need to be able to like teach you all the information you need to know, but really just motivating you and in inspiring you to learn more. Um, I'd say because my parents, like they, they worked so hard to like kind of, because they're originally from Malaysia, they worked so hard to like go to a school and come to America. So, um, and this is probably like a similar story for several other um, first generation born Americans in, in, in the country. Um, our parents worked so hard to come to the country that like to bring us more opportunities. So like me wanting, me and my sister, like we always want to take advantage of every of, of opportunities that we can find just to make our parents proud, to make them feel like their journey to like America was worth it. If that makes sense. Mm, that's beautifully put. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And mm. you got the coping skills nailed down early on, but um, at that supportive environment just gives you extra wings to fly. Of course. Yeah. How inspirational to see that is also generated i think that motivation inside of yourself to give back to others what you have received within the comforts and the love of your home yeah i know that you're in a mentor in a real life situation but as an imaginary mentor or so to speak big brother now talking on the podcast what would you advise to anyone listening, or perhaps your younger self, a message that would have helped you out when you started conducting research? I would say that when I started conducting research, I would say like frustration is inevitable. Um, I mean, like I, I face like with any like math pro, uh, project or like any project in general, I could say is like, you're going to face like errors, you're going to face roadblocks and just like, where do I go next? that's inevitable, like it's going to happen. But I would say like, at times when I started out, I got really frustrated. And like, I kind of like lost a bit of motivation. And I feel like that's kind of a thing for, um, for most students that conduct research, there's, there's some moments in there where you feel like you're losing kind of like motivation, and um, you don't know what to do next. But I would say like, just keep going. I mean, there's always a next step for your research. 
Um, there's some way you can move forward. There's some way kind of like reach, reach out to anyone, you know, that may be able to help. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Um, but like, also it has to come from you. Like you can't be like asking for help at every step. Like you need to take every measure you can to try to learn that new thing by yourself. Read, go read on PubMed, go, go do it. Just go read something. And then try to try everything you can to learn that thing by yourself because that's what's going to prove the most beneficial for you um and then like don't be afraid to reach out for help i would say that's one of like the most important things that i wish i could have told myself when i started research and also that like like at first when i started like i kind of treated everything like kind of like competition math and with competition math you kind of like rush through the problems um because that's the strategy like and that's what i grew up with and i would say like research you really need to take your time um and understand most of the time you're not under a strict time crunch unless you're like preparing a project for ISEF or something like that. But research is something that you really need to make sure every step is appropriate. You're not missing anything. There's not something that you could have done better that you're just not doing. So taking the time to really know exactly that you're, that each step of your project is, um, is working and that you're not taking like shortcuts or taking the easy way out, putting in that work is really important. So I would say those are my two main pieces of advice. Those are actually, I think, amazing advice because you've touched on two crucial parts. First, is breaking down your ego, so mm. building up humility. Of course, yeah. And I've noticed, and I think perhaps you agree with me, that those scientists who had conducted research for 40 plus or even 60 years are one of the most humble people. They are, they are. Perhaps that's why, because they had so many roadblocks and failures. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And like, you'll see like, the, the people you meet at ISF and all those other competitions, like they're the people who do well, and the people who like, um, who you like love talking to the most, it's usually because they're very humble. They not only do they know their project very well, but they're also like, very easy to talk to, um, very interesting to talk to. And you feel like they're like, you're talking to like, someone who's very genuine. So yes, Sometimes, and I don't mean to be disrespectful, but I think that's also a psychological component. I definitely when do, yeah. There is uh, a lack of work or a lack of activity within your professional work. You try to amp it up with fake mm -hmm. confidence. And I think that people have these very sensitive receptors that you can feel it with. And you know that something is missing and they are trying to overcompensate for the Of course. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I agree. Now we are moving into the if questions department, because as okay. we love to explore what if scenarios, don't we? Yeah, definitely. You educate people about criminal justice system. And that's why I think this upcoming question is so applicable in your situation. Talking in legal terms, as a tsar of legislation, an omnipotent ruler, what would you mm. like to change in our society and why? I think that the one thing I've kind of thought about the most is I think every student and not just around my, my state, which I've experienced is like everyone around the world should be given the exact same opportunities to learn. And I think that there's like a lot of inequity in education in the sense that funding towards areas is decreased um, in low income areas. The schools just don't have as many resources as places in like urban areas, which have like high tech research and like, all those other stuff. And I think that may cause a lot of like different issues um, for students in their future, because they weren't provided like the same resources as their fellow peers at a younger age to explore and define their interests. And I think that giving everyone like a homogeneous environment 
would really play a big role in helping um, everyone kind of like develop their ideas of what they want to do in the future, as well as get a strong foundation to do anything they really want. Um, and I think that's one thing I would want to change if I was the star of legislation. Um, I think that kind of creating that environment where, and this may be like just kind of impossible due to like economic factors or whatever else, but creating that, since this is completely hypothetical, like creating like a constant environment across every, across every school around, um, around the world, just so students have the opportunity to explore everything in the same way. Um, and give everyone like the highest technology that's available. Like if there's one school that has like really cool, like laboratories, I'd like in other, other schools to have that too. It, it shouldn't just be because their parents can't afford to send them to like more expensive school or whatever it may be. It shouldn't be that, that, that shouldn't be an issue. So I would think that that's one thing I want to change is creating that environment. Yes. What a better world we would live in. Yeah, exactly. And I know, yeah, like I said, I don't know if that's ever going to be possible, but it'd just be like a better world. You're right. As you've expanded on it, I was reminded of a quote like, give a man a fish and you will feed him for a day, but teach a man to fish and you fed him for a lifetime. Yeah, exactly. Which is starting out, not necessarily the same, but a similar starting level, they would really have a more of an open space environment to explore their passions and truly stand out in their niche fields in the future. I completely agree with that. And the next if question is, if you could choose to have dinner with anyone living or from the past, who would you invite and why to your dinner party? That's a good question. So I, I've like, I don't know. I've just, I feel like I've received that question like so many times on just like in conversations, but also like writing college essays. Like that's been kind of like the question that I have to think about the most <laughs> because it's hard for me to know. Like I don't, there's like, there's like a ton of people that I would really want to have, like, just like have a conversation with, like probably like, like Roger Federer, like I I'd obviously like love to have a conversation with him about like tennis and like how impressive he is. But also like, I'd love to like talk to like Jon Snow, like Jon Snow is the father of epidemiology. Like he was the very first one to really conduct like a sound epidemiology study with cholera back in those days when cholera was around first around, I guess. There's just like so many like scientists, so many Nobel prize winners. Like, I feel like that would be really cool to talk to. Um, I, so I would say like, I'd probably, I'd probably stick with Jon Snow if I had to answer it just because I think like if I'd like to ask him, like, what advice do you have for like an aspiring epidemiologist and like what really inspired you to conduct that initial study into cholera to try to find out what was causing it and who was at higher risk. Um, so that would be really cool. But I think that um, I'd also like to talk to my grandma, like kind of like on a more personal note, because like my dad, like my dad's mom, that is like she played like a gigantic role in his life. And he always talks about her, but I only got to see her like one or two times. I feel like I kind of lost an opportunity to get to know her when she passed away a few years ago. Um, so trying to like talk to her and that that would be really cool. But uh, on a personal note, but like more like, yeah, like on a fun note, Roger Federer, like I said, or Nadal, like those tennis players are kind of like my heroes, not only because they're like insanely good at tennis, but because um, like they, they have like a, like they have been at the top of the game like, and this is applicable to any field, like research or anything, they've been at the top of tennis for over like, for almost 20 years. And like, there's been so many like newcomers, people passing through, but they've just stayed at the top because of their like, perseverance through um, injury and hard times. And 
like work ethic. And I think that's something that I'd really like to talk to them about, like how they've stayed motivated through all of that. Well, first of all, I'm very sorry about your loss and accept my condolences. It's really interesting also what you, you know, said about sports and I guess the infusion of physical activities in STEM, because with tennis, I guess you being a professional player, you also have to implement strategies to score more points and have this future forward way of thinking, but also staying in the moment. When have you started playing at tennis? I started playing when I was in like uh, fifth grade. I, I like, I kind of, I fell in love with it um, kind of pretty fast. And then I like started competing, like traveling and stuff like that. And I just started to love it more. And then like um, when high school came along, like I just kind of wanted to find like my interest in research. So I started started playing less and less, but I still play until today. It's just like one of my favorite activities to do outside of outside of um, like research and school and academic stuff. That's great. That's great to hear. And you also have to clear your mind yeah. a bit. Now we are going to play the this or that game. So as the name suggests. I'm excited. I don't know what this is. You know, you know what is this? Okay. <laughs> I don't yeah. have to explain yeah. those so complicated rules. Okay, let's start it with this one because you we've touched on it. Would you play tennis uh, double or single? So in a team or individual? I always played doubles in, in high school tennis. Um, and I just really like playing with a teammate, uh, getting like pumped up with a teammate, getting hyped when we win a point. That's just like really fun. So yeah, working as a team. Yeah, high five for the score. Oh, yeah. You also play the piano for long time for eight years if you had to choose between Chopin or Beethoven who would you choose to play or his piece that's a good question because like um with piano I had like a very um enemy relationship with piano <laughs> uh I I like practiced it I got like I could say I got okay like not nearly as good as some people I know but like um the thing was I'd probably do I'd probably do neither. And I, I know like this might like come as a surprise to students, other people who play pianos because like I, I like when I played, like I, I didn't really enjoy playing like classical music. Like I would just kind of like um, go and play like movie scores or whatever, like other random songs, like rap songs and stuff like that, because I feel like that was just more interesting to me. Um, and so like, I, I, I don't know. I just can't answer that because I just don't like either that's so hip okay the rap song part really shocked me what would you play which rap song on your piano oh man uh this is i don't know i just feel like maybe like i i just most recently learned um do you know are you familiar with kodak black kodak black i think i seen him some of guy friends playlists but i yeah no he's just what he's just a rapper and like i like his i just enjoy, enjoy play, playing like the background rhythms and stuff like that like that kind of stuff i still play until today even though I quit like less formal lessons and stuff like that. But yeah, it's just something I like to do in my free time. Yeah, your super talent is rapping on a piano. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Awesome. Would you do a karaoke or a dance off? Oh man, I cannot dance. Even though like d that dancing was one of my favorite parts of ITF, like it was more just jumping up and down in the mosh pit. Um, I can't actually dance if someone like singled me out. But like we have a karaoke machine in my house and I'm not even a good singer, like not not at all. But I, I would probably do karaoke just because it's less embarrassing, I think. I think there is this generalized expectation that the singer is not going to be a professional one. So it's more yeah. fun aspect of it rather than uh, going on American Idol. Definitely. Yeah. Early bird or night owl? Um, It really depends on the day. I would say like on school days, it's weird because on school days. I'm like, I hate getting up in the morning. 
Um, and like, I, I like I'm super tired throughout the day, but on weekends it's weird. Cause I get up early and like, um, and like, I feel like active throughout the day. So I feel like it, it's something like psychological there because I can, I can get up early easily on the weekends, but like, I just have so much trouble getting up for school at the same time in the weekday. I can understand that traveling all around the world or doing the Marco Polo trip. What's the Marco Polo trip? I going from the very eastern part of asia so doing the same route as marco polo did i believe from china oh, all the way okay. to eastern europe uh, it's also challenging so you have to go by foot oh but when i travel around the world can i use a plane you can <laughs> okay I, i would probably say travel around the world um do, are there people who choose to travel on foot there are people yeah living today oh. no yeah I, um I, i'd probably just use a plane and go and um pick up my stuff i'd always like wanted to do a a world trip of food. I love food. I think that I, if I could just like go, it'd be so cool to like go to every country and try like the most traditional dish from that country. I think that would be really cool. So that's something I'd probably do on the world trip. What's Malaysia's traditional dish? Um, Malaysia is actually famous for its food. Um, like I, I could argue that Malaysia has probably the best food on the planet, but I think that Malaysia's traditional dish, there's like They're, they, the thing is they have a combination of Chinese, Indian, um, Chinese and Indian food. Like that's their tradition because that's, those are the two main populations that, it, and Malay, which is like, um, a like those are the three groups that kind of coexist in Malaysia. Um, so that kind of serves for more like, uh, a, uh, noodle dishes that's called me. Me is like the noodles that, um, they have in Malaysia. So that's pretty traditional. And they also have, um, rice dishes with like different, like curries and different meats. So I feel like it's like more. Um, a combination between Indian and Chinese, which makes it really good. Ah, oh, that's interesting. Like yeah. me, like um, yeah. rice and Chinese characters. So that's also yeah. existent in Malaysian. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. You, your Italian teammates right now, I think from the Web Valley are starting a war with you. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it would be really interesting to taste Malaysian food. So I think that's a very good food recommendation on the podcast. The closing question, which really encapsulates all the things you've expanded upon and we've talked about in this podcast, is the following. What does science mean to you? That's a good question. I think that science, what it's meant for me, is really finding my future. I think that before I came into science and before I kind of experiment, did experiments and ran through projects, I think that I didn't have the clearest idea of what I wanted to do in the future. But through like making mistakes, through persevering through projects, reading new like emerging technologies and all the things that go along with creating like a sound project, like that's what encapsulates science. And that's what made me realize like, I, this is what I want to do this. Like I want to be an epidemiologist. I want to be involved with this research throughout my entire life. So yeah, science for me was about finding my passion and finding my future, I think. And that's the best way I can sum it up. That's of the greatest things in life when your passion fuses with your profession because you no longer of course you will have challenging moments in your life but it wouldn't necessarily be categorized as work that you have to do but work that you want and desire to do in the midst of challenges yeah. even yeah i said it better myself well you previously did so <laughs> it was really an enjoyable and informative conversation and i think that you've provided lots of bits of wisdom to the listeners as well so thank you for coming on the podcast and hopefully inspiring many 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me. That was really fun, actually. Been like on podcasts before, but this was probably the best conversation I've had on one. But yeah, thank you so much for having me. Really my passion to make the guests feel welcome and I'm glad if that's been achieved. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, and more. If you want to show your support and be updated on all the news, make sure to hit that subscribe button, leave a review, which would ultimately help the algorithm to bring the message to even more people and inspire many. Follow the pod on Instagram and Facebook as well. As always, Thank you for taking a few moments of science with us and stay tuned for the next episode.